We are back in the world of the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and I'd love to welcome you behind the scenes of my weird and wonderful life on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. Mostly workouts and mojitos, but it'd be great to see you there. And to the episode today, and very few people can claim that they've truly created and defined a new category in the world of Sass. Well, our guest today most certainly can. We had such a special discussion on round one over two years ago, I thought it'd be incredible to welcome him back for a very special round two. And so with that, I'm thrilled to welcome back Nick Mater. CEO at Gainsight, the top-rated customer success platform for corporate services, turning your customers into your best growth engine. To date, Gainsight have raised over $156 million in funding from some of the best in the world, including the likes of Lightspeed, Bessemer, Insight Venture Partners, Factory Ventures, and Salesforce Ventures, just to name a few. As for Nick, prior to Gainsight, he was the CEO at Live Office, where he grew cloud archiving ARR from $2 million in 2008 to $25 million in 2011, and drove and negotiated the acquisition by Symantec for $115 million in cash. And before Live Office, Nick was Senior Director of Product Management at Symantec, where he led the $378 million market-leading email archiving security business, managing over 180 people across three continents. I'd also want to say a huge thank you both to Byron Dieter and Jason Lampkin for the intro to Nick over two years ago. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, I want to ask a question. Who has never had a bad service experience? I know I do all the time, and that's why you need customers. That's Customer with a K, the next generation customer management platform that gives you a full view of your customer journeys, business process automation, and the ability to know everything about every customer driving informed actions. Customer tracks every purchase you've made, product you've returned, ad you've clicked on, or item you've tossed from your cart. Presenting it in a beautiful, always in context, omni-channel timeline view for the agent so that they can consistently and effortlessly deliver a really white glove service. But don't just take my word for it. People first companies like Away travel, Glossier, Ring, and Rent the Runway already choose to work with customer and see significant improvements in customer satisfaction, retention, and agent efficiency. So go to customer.com, that's customer with a K, dot com, to learn more and ask for a demo. And now we have customer management sorted. Your next crucial job is people operations. That could be hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent, and building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies and helps companies like Asana, Reddit and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, and set up goal tracking and even run employee engagement surveys for that matter. Lattice is also the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement, so operators can make sure top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive the full offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. And finally, bringing the team and the customer together as we have there. As you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. This time we'll hear from a former guest on the show in the form of Mike McDermott, CEO and co-founder at FreshBooks. FreshBooks offers lead cloud accounting software for small businesses and self-employed persons. It provides invoicing, time tracking, project management, payments, and more. Hey, Harry, if you care about culture and you're scaling, you got to think about organizational brand. Points. Four or five people in the room, everyone knows what's going on, but 15 people, you might start getting into your first managers and that'll freak some of your team out. And then when you hit 40 people, not everyone will know what's going on anymore. That'll spook some others. At 80, everything breaks down communication-wise. You need new tools and, and 150 is kind of another place. So look out for these things while you're scaling your company. Love those tips from Mike and what a hero he is. And to find out how you can successfully grow payments revenue by over 100% in a year, check out our time snap case study by visiting 
visiting wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough of me. So now I'm very, very excited to hand over to Nick Mater, CEO at Gainsight. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Nick, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show for a very special round two. As I said last time, I've heard so many wonderful things from Byron. He provided more than enough in terms of questions again. So thank you so much for joining me again, Nick. Harry, it's so awesome to be back. I listen to your show all the time. I'm really excited to be here. I mean, my word, that is so wonderful for my ego. But I would love to kick off today with a little bit on you. And for those that missed round one, how did you make your way into the world of customer success and come to be the CEO at Gainsight? Some would say that I was born to do customer success. I think that might be revisionist history, but there's a fun story from my childhood. I I was eight years old. There's a photo actually I still have of me with my brother and my dad growing up in uh, Pennsylvania in the U.S. And I remember my dad taking me to work, kind of a take your child to work day. And I actually vividly remember him saying, if you ever go into business, you should either be the person selling the product or the person building the product. Because once you've got the customer, they're kind of stuck with you. And it's funny that for those that don't know what I do, you know, now I run this company called Gainsight, which is all about changing that model where it's not just about building and selling, but that you got to re-earn your customer's business every day and you got to work to keep them and work to grow them. And so from my childhood, I had this interesting thing planted in my mind. I had a meandering path from there. I've always wanted to be in tech. I, I did a consumer startup. I worked in a big company. I eventually ran another SaaS company, which I ran and then sold. And in my last company, I learned firsthand that the world has changed and that you can't afford to just sell a customer and move on. That in these subscription businesses, you're with that customer life and you got to re-earn their business every day. And that's kind of the impetus that caused me to want to, after selling my company, to jump into Gainsight. I didn't found Gainsight, but I joined very, very early as it was just getting started. I met through some investors and I just fell in love with the idea. And I just had my six-year anniversary, so that was six years ago. Well, massive congratulations on the six years. I do have to ask, you mentioned the other companies before, and I'm fascinated by bubbles and macro crashes. Yeah. Honestly, never worked through one. So this is a learning opportunity for me. How did operating in the times of the crash, running your own business, a PE-owned business, how did that affect and really impact your operating mindset today? Well, it's a great question, Harry, and I'm old enough to have been through two crashes because I was in college. I started my first company, this consumer internet company, in the late 90s, which when we graduated, we ran, we raised a lot of venture capital. We actually almost went public. We were 20 years old, and we thought we were done for life, and then the market crashed, as some folks may remember, in the late 90s, and then subsequent to that, I was running a company during the 2008 financial crisis. So you're totally right. And I think that's interesting because there's two sides to it. On one side, of course, you learn that things aren't always going to be great and you will have really challenging times. And you know, in my last company in 2008, we almost ran out of money, literally to the point where we were wondering whether the executives would have to skip payroll one time, which is a very scary time to be. And we made it and we eventually sold the company had a great exit. But I think one of the things that it teaches you is, okay, you got to be very disciplined and prudent about cash and you have to be prepared for downside. But maybe the more important thing for me is the rebounds teach you a lot too. I remember in 2000, the internet market had fallen apart. Literally people were saying, yeah, that consumer internet thing was a fad. Amazon, that company was going to totally go out of business. I mean, it's crazy to think about what people said. And same thing in 2009, right? The SaaS companies were worth like almost nothing. I wish you could have bought all those companies at that point. I'm sure you feel the same way. And meanwhile, like the really smart people were buying them. So I think the big 
big thing that crashes have taught me is that there's going to be rebounds and there's huge opportunity in those rebounds. I mean, I love thinking of the opportunity in the rebounds. Sadly, in 2009, I was 13, so I probably wasn't thinking about exactly. the fast company. <laughs> but I, I do want to break the interview today, Nick, into two quite distinct parts, really. I want to start on all things customer success and then move into really the culture and DNA of firms required to successfully scale. Does that sound good? Yes, that sounds great. So starting on the way we think about customer success in orgs, because when we chatted before, you left me with a very unfair cliffhanger when you said customer success will fail if it's just a role and not a strategy. Thank you so much for explaining this one further when we chatted. But how can I not start with that? What did you mean by this strategy, not role? Oh, my gosh. And I would say not just a role. So the role is very important, but it's not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. To give you some context, why did customer success as a concept get created? Well, got created fundamentally because you had this customer journey that spanned, you know, sales and services and support and renewals. And you had everyone kind of thinking in a silo, right? It's sales in their silo and marketing in their silo. And they're all doing a good job, but nobody was thinking about that customer journey. So along comes customer success as the superheroes to save the day, right? And they come into the companies and companies have hired these teams and they're so great. And that's my people. I love them. But at the end of the day, they on their own without the other departments can't solve all the problems. They can't solve how the product experience works or the expectations set in sales or the way the marketing value proposition aligns to reality. And so if your customer success team is brought in and has to solve everything on their own, they're just yet another silo. And that really doesn't solve the problem. It kicks the can down the road. So the best companies have a customer success team, but kind of think of all of the groups internally like a symphony where everyone's playing their own instrument and the customer success team is kind of the conductor keeping everyone in harmony. I love that symphony and conductor analogy, but it sounds wonderful in theory. What can you, the leader, and what can CEOs and functional leads do to really imbue this strategy, not role, in terms of customer success permeating throughout the whole organization? What can they tangibly do? Absolutely. I'll give you a kind of a multi-step plan. So step one, obviously, if you don't have a customer success team, create one because they kind of become your eyes and ears for seeing this opportunity. Step two, lots of people, we'll talk about this more in a second, but will bury their customer success team in the org. You got to treat this team like a kind of peer to sales and marketing and product. It's, it's, I mean, the customer journey is so important. So make it an executive role. Step three, give that team two charters. One charter is work with the customers, drive adoption. That's kind of what you typically expect. But charter two is drive this cross-functional initiative around the customer journey, run the kind of customer council or the customer committee, whatever you want to call it, and have representatives from sales and marketing and services and have OKRs and KPIs goals basically for that cross-functional committee around things like, you know, the handoff from sales to service or how product gets more tightly aligned to customer success. So kind of run it as a cross-functional initiative, just like you have a cross-functional initiative for your culture or for your business model. You need one for your customers. Can I ask, is there one function in particular or a couple that really stick out in terms of struggling to really embrace this, be it engineering who are kind of focused so much on dev cycles and quick iteration or sales so much focused on hitting quota for the quarter? Yeah. Is there one or two which maybe are more resistant that you've seen? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Well, the good news is that I think when you describe fundamentally this concept of customer success that, you know, our customers have power, we need to be proactive with them, we need to get them to use what they've bought and get value, and they'll renew and expand. Who could be against that, right? That's like motherhood and apple pie, at least we say over here in the States. And so nobody's against that. I go speak at company all hands, and there's engineers and there's product managers or salespeople. They love this idea. And their question is, how do they get involved? So I think the precise answer to your question would be, I think of a kind of a triangle, a triumvirate, which is customer success, sales, and product. And that's kind of what you need as the linchpin of alignment. All of them want to do this. But I think there's a little bit of like, okay, who does what? How do we work together? Um, but that's the problem, you know, as an industry, we're all trying to solve. Can I ask, do you ever get a conflict between marketing and customer success where you have a marketing team that yes. could be performing insanely well, filling top of funnel to the extreme, almost bloating it, and then a kind of customer success team's overloaded? Is that the tension? And where do you see tension between maybe marketing and customer success? It's a great question. I think that's one of the next frontiers after product and sales. I was actually just talking to the CMO of a publicly traded company that happens to be one of our customers. And the CMO said, here's the deal, Nick. I would love to help with our existing customers. But at the end of the day, I'm just measured on top of funnel. So I'm just measured on the number of leads, the number of demos, things like that. right? And so fundamentally, she's like, I'm not measured on it. I can't work on it. So a lot of marketing leaders, I think right now, are still thought of as kind of the demand gen team, the pipeline team, the new business team. And in that world, fundamentally what happens is a customer success team kind of creates their own version of marketing for existing customers. You see that a lot where CS teams are kind of have some people that are doing the scalable programs to drive adoption through email campaigns and things like that. But there's some marketing leaders that somehow have adjusted their charter with their CFO, CEO to say, I've got the whole life cycle from new business to adoption to expansion to renewals. And those marketing leaders then can more partner more closely. So I would say to marketing leaders, either get your goals and tight alignment with the CS team or kind of, you know, get out of the way and let the CS team do their stuff with the existing customers. The worst thing that can happen is the CS team is waiting for marketing and marketing doesn't have the charter. And then all those customers get ignored. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Can I ask, is it the CEO's responsibility then? You as the CEO of Gainside, is it the CEO's responsibility in kind of maybe more traditional companies to make customer success a more pivotal KPI for their CMOs. Absolutely. I think if you kind of think about it in a broad sense, go back to the orchestra analogy, the CEO's job is to define the analogy, the metaphor, as you know, I would argue the orchestra, right? And an example there would be a lot of people historically would use the metaphor of kind of American football, like a quarterback. And that quarterback is often the salesperson and running the show. And I'd argue that analogy is dated because there's too many functions and the customer experience is too many different groups. And you need to have more of a distributed model. So a CEO's job is define the analogy and then define each person's role. So you can say the marketing team is the violins and the, the sales team is the bass and the, you know, the drums and all that. And maybe the CS team is the xylophone. I don't know, right? But define where people sit and then define kind of sheet music to keep people all together. And so that sheet music in some ways is the KPIs and the goals. What's marketing's goals in this? What's sales goals in this? I've run a lot of workshops with executive teams where we'll sit down and go function by function and say, what are your KPIs and how would they evolve in a world where we're all a symphony together. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm going to steal this symphony analogy because it's too good. In terms of CS's relationship with sales, you said, and I, I do have to jump on it, about burying CS under sales almost always fails. What does this normally look like, Nick? And why does it have such a high rate of failure? Absolutely. And by the way, like everything, it's not 100% failure. In fact, there's some sales leaders who are very enlightened and they see the whole customer life cycle. But I think some of them, I just naturally are just under a lot of pressure. 
pressure for that quarter. And if you think about CS in general, you're usually doing things today that affect the future, right? Rarely can you like identify a problem with a customer, do something to help them and drive the renewal and expansion all in the same month, right? It's actually very much a long game. And so I was talking to a friend of mine who was a CRO and he used to be a sales leader. Then he became a customer success leader. Then he became a CRO, chief revenue officer, ran sales and CS. And I said, okay, what was it like running both? And he said, Nick, honestly, I would spend 50 hours a week on sales and one hour a week on customer success. Not because I didn't want to spend time on customer success, but there's so much on the current quarter and getting my deals done. And so he said, at the end of the day, either you need an org that truly is empowered to think longer term or split them out. So I would argue if you're a CRO who's able to balance that, maybe you have a great sales leader underneath, you have a great customer success leader, more power to you to bring them together. Um, But I think most companies, the sales team is so focused on the near term that CS often gets ignored is a bit of an afterthought. And I would argue that's the worst mistake you can make. In terms of that relationship, and you must be so bored of answering this question, but I felt while I had Nick Mater on the show, I had to ask it. So uh, here goes. In terms of that relationship, who do you think fundamentally owns the renewals in terms of customer success versus sales? And from an organization design perspective, what's your recommendation on that? Yeah, that's a great, it's a, I never get bored because it's actually a very dynamic question and it's definitely the number one question I get asked. And I think the way I like to think about it is there's not one right answer, but there's a good thought process. And here's the thought process. So if you've got a business where the company basically has these long-term relationships that are complex and there's a lot of expansion potential in your accounts and you know fundamentally it's not kind of a one and done transactional model, there's a lot of merit to the salesperson being involved, owning the renewal and the expansion. The renewal can be a catalyst for the expansion and the CS team basically being there to drive value and adoption, but not necessarily owning the transaction. And that you'll see that a lot in these large ACV, high touch businesses where the sales team stays engaged for the life cycle of the customer. So the other extreme is a business that's a low ASP, low ACV business. Maybe your average deal is 20 grand. The sales team is going to hunt and then move on. And you move on, you hand it off to a CS team that kind of owns that renewal, maybe even owns that expansion. I'm seeing more and more CS teams own expansion. And so you have a model where you kind of have a one team, the sales team kind of getting new customers and a different one mining and growing your existing customers. So you've got these two models. And I think that generally speaking, if you tend to be a higher touch business, longer cycles, more expansion, more complexity, most of those tend to have the reps keep the accounts. And if you tend to be a little bit more transactional, a little bit more higher velocity, you tend to have a bit more of a separation between new business and existing. Now, I talked to one of our customers literally this morning who actually had a really good point, which is sometimes those customers you get handed over where they're quote unquote renewal, sometimes they're actually a resell, right? This happens in SaaS a lot. The buyer is very empowered. So when the renewal comes up, sometimes they say, you know what? I want to look at the market and, or God forbid, maybe they even never deployed and they truly, it's like a new sale. And so so some people will do is even if the CS team has the account and owns it and owns the renewal, they may have a small incentive for the sales team so that they can be brought back in for those situations where you really need a true new sales approach. So there's kind of basically two ends of the spectrum. I'd vary it based on how high touch your business is, what your ASP is. So if that's renewal, and I totally understand CS being accountable for renewal and not really infringing on that relationship of trust that they have with the client. The one where I don't see, and prove me, I'd love your thoughts here. I really have a problem when CS own upsell. Is that unfair of me? Because I always think it just ruins that relationship of trust and it's like a friend trying to sell you something. Why am I wrong here? And what are your thoughts? Well, I think that you're not wrong. I think that the thing that's wrong is having one term called upsell. I think it's 
one thing the industry, uh, I actually wrote a blog post about this, how there's like many kinds of upsell. And so I'd argue some make sense in some teams to be owned by CS, but they really don't look like upsell to the customer. So if you think about it, when you're a customer and you want to add a small number of additional seats, right? And you literally, it's because you have new employees and they need licenses. Yeah, you know, that's not really being sold to. That's like literally you're buying. Or, or maybe you need a new module that's very incremental, right? But on the flip side, if you're a customer and the company needs to wants to get you to use the company in a totally different capacity and totally different division, that's truly an upsell, maybe a completely different product. And so what I would argue is over time, some of that low friction upsell that's really more like buying, not selling, sometimes that's done in the CS team actually in service of the customer. So there's not multiple people to deal with. By the way, the best way to do it is in the product. So you don't even have to talk to anyone, but that's kind of the very incremental. And what I see most people do is even if they do some incremental upsell through the CS team, when you're trying to go sell that new division or that brand new product line, you're still bringing in the sales team for the reasons you described, but also because salespeople are good at driving new sales. So I think the real thing to happen is defining the different kinds of upsell and which ones may make sense in the CS context, which ones make sense in a true sales context. You mentioned product there, Nick, and I do have to dive on this because, again, latching on something that you said before, you said that product and CS must be as tight as sales and marketing. Why is that? And what do you think one can do, again, maybe as the CEO, to create almost this intimacy between product and CS? It's a great question. Let's go back to 10, 15 years ago in software. So one of the things you would hear 10, 15 years ago over and over again is, God, like marketing is doing all this stuff and it's not aligned to sales and sales and marketing weren't on the same page. There's often a very dysfunctional relationship. And what happened is sales and marketing realized that they can only win if they win together. Fundamentally, they had to be tied at the hip. And especially with the advent of digital marketing, online marketing, websites, nurture, that really brought them together. And you had this company, had metrics that they agreed to, for example, a marketing qualified lead, which is essentially, you know, the thing that came from marketing that went to sales. And so that those two groups came together and it's been really amazing. There's still problems, but I think most companies, sales and marketing are much better aligned than they were 10 years ago. And so when we look at that analogy, we look at the customer success world and say, okay, well, customer success can't win on its own. We talked about that before. It needs the whole company, but who it really needs is that product team building products that are aligned to customer needs, tracking what people are doing in the product and giving the CS team data, and then helping the CS team leverage the product to drive onboarding and adoption and things like that. And so fundamentally, in some ways, marketing helped the sales team scale with kind of one-to-many strategies, and the product team can help the CS team scale. And most companies, they struggle with the fact that you could never hire enough CSMs to cover all your customers in all parts of the life cycle. So how do you scale? So we would argue that product is the key to scalable customer success. And inside that, fundamentally, the product teams more and more are being asked to produce data about how the product's being used and consumed, are being asked to listen to the customer better and collaborate with the CS team on roadmap, and are being asked to like leverage the product, meaning like when that user logs in, guiding them to new features, guiding them through onboarding, things like that. And so it's really exciting to see that coming together. It's happening in my company, between my product and CS team, it's happening in the industry. I always think unless things are structured though, they often don't tend to happen, especially in high yes. organizations. So in terms of that feedback loop between the communicating CS and product teams, for you today, what makes you go, uh-huh, that's a great communication flow between CS and product? And what should the structure be around that communication? I've got two structures. And by the way, I think we're still learning, so there's more to, to come. But there are two structures that I think are very like applicable for everyone. Structure number one is a really strong work 
workflow to take things that are coming from customers as kind of requests that are critical to that customer's success and really sorting them out and making them tracked with product and then having a closed loop to go back to the customer. And so the challenge here is the, your clients will have thousands of things they want different, right? They may want the button to look a different color. Then they log in. They want it to look a little bit nicer. But there's some things that are truly blocking their outcome. So Gainsight, we call this the product risk process. The customer success team knows the nuances of the customer's outcomes, identify enhancements that the customer really needs to address their outcomes. And then we track those and we have a very religious process of closing the loop. So that's one process, very straightforward. We've even documented it on how to do it. The second process is thinking about how you measure your product team. And I, I've talked to a lot of product leaders. By the way, I started my career as a product manager. So I kind of know this firsthand where product teams want to do a great job. But what does a great job mean in the modern world? It's actually really hard to say how you measure a product team. You measure a CS team by maybe renewal rate and expansion. You measure a sales team by their bookings. How do you measure a product team? That's a core question for our age. And so the second thing I would recommend is building a scoring methodology like you have might a health score for your customers. You might have an MQL for marketing. What's the scoring for how you measure each product team in your company? And most companies have multiple product teams because they've adopted an agile or scrum methodology. So they might have lots of small teams. For each of those teams, what is success? So again, Gainsight, we've got a scorecard for every team. And that scorecard looks at things like not just quality and release time, but it looks at, for example, adoption rate and customer satisfaction with that feature or that function. And so we built a scorecard aligned between the way the customer success team sees the world and the product team sees the world. Absolutely love those two different structures. And I can't thank you enough for unpacking them for me. I do want to ask though, because we mentioned that kind of customer success really permeating its way throughout the structure of the organization. If we move to the structure itself and really what binds it all together being the culture, so to speak, commonly said that A players hire A players with this kind of idolatry towards the A player. Always terrified because I'm probably not classed in that as a university dropout. <laughs> exactly. But you said before that the A player is dangerous. Class Nick, why is it dangerous? There are so many things that get said in Silicon Valley, especially, and then repeated without anyone questioning the fundamental assumptions. And sometimes I feel like Neo in the Matrix, like wondering, why do I think differently about some of this stuff? And I think a lot of the truisms about talent, I think, are fundamentally flawed and I would say dangerous because they basically are in some ways just subtly perpetuating our bias. So, yes, A players, higher pay A players, that's what people say, right? And the truth is they have an image of an A player and they went to a certain college and they look a certain way and they act a certain way, they speak a certain way. And, you know, by the way, I'm super privileged. I probably fall into some of these stereotypes myself. And the reality is there's all these other people that actually, in my experience, they may not show up as a quote-unquote A player to the average hiring manager. But the reality is they have just as much talent and just as much potential, but companies aren't giving them the shot. And so they're kind of dividing the world into the A players and everyone else. I actually would argue a company, almost everyone in the company, they can get a lot more out of them if they're actually looking to find the greatness in those people versus constantly looking for the next great person. I really think there's greatness in almost everyone in your company. And I've we had a discussion this week in our management team where I asked every executive to say, tell me a time where you change your opinion of somebody where you didn't think they were great and later on they were great. Everyone came up with an example. And that shows me that our initial impressions of people are fundamentally flawed. Our gut instinct is just bias. And so I think this A player concept is really dangerous to us building diverse and high performance companies. I'm so pleased you said there about the discussion within the team because I spoke to one of your team members, uh, Dan Steinman, before the show. And he asked, how do you look to root out dysfunctions when trying to make a team work? And what's that process look like for you? Yeah, it's interesting because it's one of the hardest 
hardest things I think is when you feel like there's somebody who's not truly bought in to the values or maybe not operating in alignment with the values and how do you coach that person and how do you talk to them? Of course, there's a lot of great techniques like 360 reviews, which I find are still the most powerful thing in the world where it's not just you telling that person, but them hearing it from lots of different people. I think fundamentally there are people where you need to tell them these are our values and this is what we believe and you need to be confident and say, if you're not into those values, there's no judgment on you, but you probably aren't the right person for the company. And I think being willing to be strong about that is really challenging. It's never ever been easy, but you need to be willing to, to actually have that happen. But I think that fundamentally going to everyone and pointing out the types of values that you're looking for, the modeling of those behaviors, and actually reinforcing those all the time is one of the strongest things you can do. Every single week in our exec team, I have an opening icebreaker question. And almost all of them are oriented around us reinforcing our values. Like this question I, I mentioned about, you know, tell me about a time where you change your mind about somebody. That's all aligned to our values around fundamentally being more inclusive and looking at different types of people's backgrounds and being able to willing to see the greatness inside them. It fits into one of our values we call Shoshin, which means beginner's mind, right? And really being willing to approach everything with an open mindedness. And so to me, it's not just about rooting out the dysfunction. It's about highlighting the function, highlighting the people that are really doing things well. So I completely agree with you there in terms of highlighting. My question to you is, I can say, Nick, I'm so into Shoshin. I'm so into all the Gainsight values. Pre-hire, this is. This is in the interview phase. How do you actually get to the root of a true person's kind of beliefs in values pre-hire? Are there some things that you like to do, questions you like to ask? Yeah, it's interesting because I would say that we are still evolving in this area. I'd say that one thing you can do really well, which I believe is maybe the most powerful thing, is be super, super external about your values. So what's it, one thing that's interesting about our values, we have five values, everyone in the company knows them, we kind of live and breathe them, but all of our customers and all of our community know most of our values as well. One of our values is like called childlike joy, bring the kid in you to work every day. And I'll be in many meetings with customers and they'll say, Nick, you're going to do the childlike joy thing now, huh? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Now, why do we do this? Well, number one, obviously we want to be authentic to ourselves, even with our customers. But number two, I want the whole world to know our values so that if you weren't into them, you wouldn't even apply. And there's some people who think childlike joy and golden rule, they'd say, what is this? Like a bed and breakfast? They might say, I don't I want to work at a company where you kill your competition and it's all about being number one. And I love those people and I definitely would love them to work at a different company. And so not a gainsight. And so one thing I think you can do is be very, very external with your values and talk about them everywhere. And so that means that the people that are really into them will apply and the people that aren't wouldn't even apply in the first place. I think that's a one critical thing. Now, the second thing I think you can do when you actually want to assess values is really ask questions about stories. So you never ask somebody, what do you think of the golden rule? Uh, do you like to treat people like other you would like to be treated? Uh, I think most people would figure out how to answer that question. But as an example, if you said, tell me about somebody that was really difficult to work with in your past life. Now, there's two ways somebody can answer that question. One way would be, yeah, there was this person and they were so difficult to work with. And I don't know what was wrong with them, but that person was just, just the worst. And I saved the day because I was so great. Now, the second way to answer is, well, I had this person and yeah, they on the surface, they look difficult to work with. But actually, I figured out that they were really stressed about their job and their spouse had just lost their job and they didn't actually know about their own security and they were having family health issues at home and I could give me a lot of empathy for who they were. That kind of person is the person we'd want to gain sight. Final element before the quick fire for me, Nick, is hire fast, fire fast. The other incredibly wise <laughs> How do you feel about this one, Nick? <laughs> I, it's, it's another one that I think fits exactly with A player. You know, there's this element of you hire 
somebody, you make a quick judgment and you fire them if they're not working out, et cetera, right? And I understand there's some cultures where that's the way to make it work. By the way, what I'm saying is not for everyone, but what I've seen, and this kind of goes back to some of our learnings internally, is that we've seen countless teammates where in one role and in one situation, they really struggle and another one, they thrive. Maybe it's a different manager. It's a different function. It's just a different change of scenery. And you know, those people, if you fire them, they're going to go find that next role somewhere else. Why wouldn't you find it in the company? People in Silicon Valley spend so much time on hiring and recruiting and finding great people outside. They don't spend enough time finding great people inside their company, you know, that maybe just haven't been put in a position to be great. So of course we have to part ways with people from time to time. And we've done that, but I would say probably more than the average bear, we try to find situations where maybe the person isn't performing because of the situation, not because of the person. If they're aligned with our values, perhaps if they've been successful in the past, I'll always personally push to say, is there something that's a fit for them internally? Now, maybe there's not, but we're going to try. I mean, I've got two subsequent questions, which is so unfair of me. I do have to ask, how long is an appropriate time to really give someone to mature into their roles? Let's start with that. Yeah, it's interesting because what I don't believe in is just throwing them to the wind in a role where they're struggling and just hoping they, they, they mature. I think that actually is not a great service to the teammate either. So I think that there's some period of time where, of course, they're just getting their legs under them and it's, you know, three, six months or whatever. But you get to a point then where, okay, they're not performing. And then to me, I ask some questions. I ask number one, have they been enabled in this job? Are they really, truly enabled for success? Now, if they're not, you could say, should we invest in enablement to make them successful? If you're a small company, maybe you can't do that. But Gainside has 600 people. We can choose to invest in enablement. We've tried to do that, for example, in sales and CS. Question number two, are they aligned in their role versus where their true gifts are? And are there other roles where their gifts would show up more? Is there a place in the company where they would show up more? And is there another potential tour of duty? I love LinkedIn uses concept of the alliance. Reed Hoffman wrote this book and talks about these tours of duty. And I love this idea that there may be another tour of duty inside the company. Now, at the same time, if they decide that tour of duty is outside the company, or if we decide we completely accept that too. But you know what? I spent so much time getting these people and so much energy and often they have so much potential. Why would I just give up after one try? I think that's the bottom line. No, I love that. And it's almost customer success of people in their that's right. organization. You, great analogy. We actually call our HR team teammate success because there's so many parallels. No, I, I love that. I would love to dive into a quick fire round there now, Nick. It's uh, my fun. favorite. As great. You know, 60 seconds. Ready? Let's go. Is it right for CEOs to be vulnerable? I think it's it's right if it feels right to you. Well, I think what's, what's wrong is feeling like you need to be a certain type of person to be a CEO. And I think there's an image of a very not open a person. I choose to be vulnerable in my life. From Brian Bessemer, what advice would you give to founders trying to create a new category? Biggest thing is you've got to be long-term greedy. I think Sequoia came up with that phrase. You can't be short-term oriented. It takes a long time to build a category, but you got to be long-term greedy. The most surprising change a company that you've seen make that has moved the needle for retention? One of the biggest things I've seen is aligning the CS and product. One, one customer of ours actually went so far as to merge the orgs together. So there's one person running CS and product, but align CS and product. What would you most like to change in the world of SaaS today? I think that we still set upper limits on how big SaaS can be and that we constantly blow through them. I think we should realize SaaS is going to be the biggest industry in the world in the long term because everything's becoming software. And then the final one, Nick, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Gaines 
insight six years ago? Buy Amazon stock would be number one. <laughs> but beyond <laughs> that, it would be that you will read lots of books and you'll listen to lots of podcasts from people telling you to do things a certain way. But eventually you figure out your own way and that's usually the best way. Nick, as I said at the beginning, I've been so looking forward to this one. It really has been such a pleasure. And thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's so fun. Thank you, Harry. And I have to say, Nick really is the dream guest for me to have on the show. If you'd like to see more from him, which is a must, then you can find him on Twitter at NRMater. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. Again, would love to see you there. But before we leave you today, I want to ask a question. Who has never had a bad service experience? I know I do all the time, and that's why you need Customer. That's Customer with a K, the next generation customer management platform that gives you a full view of your customer journeys, business process automation, and the ability to know everything about every customer driving informed actions. Customer tracks every purchase you've made, product you've returned, ad you've clicked on, or item you've tossed from your cart. Presenting it in a beautiful, always in context, omni-channel timeline view for the agent so that they can consistently and effortlessly deliver a really white glove service. But don't just take my word for it. People first companies like Away Travel, Glossier, Ring, and Rent the Runway already choose to work with customer and see significant improvements in customer satisfaction, retention, and agent efficiency. So go to customer.com, that's customer with a K.com to learn more and ask for a demo. And now we have customer management sorted. Your next crucial job is people operations. That could be hiring execs, developing managers, and retaining that top talent and building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies and helps companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, and set up goal tracking and even run employee engagement surveys for that matter. Lattice is also the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement so operators can make sure top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive the full offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. And finally, bringing the team and the customer together as we have there. As you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. This time we'll hear from a former guest on the show in the form of Mike McDermott, CEO and co-founder at FreshBooks. FreshBooks offers lead cloud accounting software for small businesses and self-employed persons. It provides invoicing, time tracking, project management, payments, and more. Hey, Harry, if you care about culture and you're scaling, you got to think about organizational breakpoints. Four or five people in the room, everyone knows what's going on, but 15 people, you might start getting into your first managers and that'll freak some of your team out. And then when you hit 40 people, not everyone will know what's going on anymore. That'll spook some others. At 80, everything breaks down communication-wise. You need new tools and, and 150 is kind of another place. So look out for these things while you're scaling your company. Love those tips from Mike and what a hero he is. And to find out how you can successfully grow payments revenue by over 100% in a year, check out our time snap case study by visiting wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I so appreciate your support. I I also really appreciate the feedback on last week's compilation episode. We'll have more of those coming and I cannot wait for some very exciting episodes ahead.